so that all plants may bud and bring forth fruit to the glory of God. We are reading the Gospel according to Mark. This is our fifth session. And um, we left off at the very beginning of chapter 4 in the Gospel according to Mark. And we will start off here reading the parable of the sower. Uh, I should say, are there any questions or comments uh, on anything we read last time? No? Okay. This is the parable of the sower. This is a very important uh, parable in the history of early friends because of some of the vocabulary here. The word seed is very important. I'm going to perhaps spend a lot of time on this. And uh, for those who are not familiar with the format, I'll read a section and then we will, I'll say a few things and discuss. And please uh, feel free to interrupt, to ask questions, to make comments, whatever seems to be on, on your mind, all right? Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there while the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. I should, I'm going to break this up, I think. Might be easier this way. Why would Jesus go out onto a boat? Because there was a loud, a large crowd there. Any thoughts? I would expect so he could be heard better and he could also see everybody in front of him rather than all around him. Yes, if the water is calm, your voice will travel more widely over it and it would be more easily heard. That's probably why, as well as being more easily seen there in a boat. Yes, and he, he could see who he's talking to also. Right. He began to teach them many things in parables. I, since I'm involved in a number of Bible studies, I can never remember what I've said in which Bible study. But the word for, that we translate as Bible in the Greek is parabole. And parabole is a Greek word that means comparison. For some reason in English, we just borrow the word directly from the Greek. But in some languages, they'll translate it and with the word comparison, which is what the word means. Jesus was always comparing things in these stories, especially the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And, and you'll see those comparisons over and over again. So that's what a parable is, basically, <clears throat> a comparison. He began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and a hundredfold. And he said, let anyone with ears to hear listen. That's the parable. 
as we go on here, we'll see that they just didn't understand it. The audience had a hard time figuring out what he was talking about. And then on verse, in verse 10, when he was alone, those who were around him, along with the 12, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables in order that they may indeed be looking, but not perceiving, and may indeed be listening, but not understanding. It is such that they may not, so, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable, this comparison? And how will you understand all the parables? And then Jesus begins to explain what the parable means. First thing, we have to kind of think of the earth, the type of earth that he's using here, where the seed falls, as being representative of the, the hearers of the word of God, the people. How some get it very quickly, but then fall off. Others understand it and keep it. Others, for a while, keep it, then lose it. And so he goes on and says, the sower sows the word. Now this word in Greek is the word logos. And this is a very important word. You'll read, oh, probably, I don't know, thousands and thousands of words and theological works on trying to explain what this word means. It has a number of meanings, quite a few actually. But the basic, one of the two or three basic meanings is the meaning of utterance or expression, anything that gets uttered or expression of something, verbal expression. It also has the sense of reasoning, the power of reason. In English, so often, unfortunately, in most translations, they translate this word as logos. Well, the word logos means anything uttered, anything expressed. It can be a whole speech, a whole talk, a homily, a sermon, it can be uh, a, a paragraph. It can be a sentence. Very rarely is it translated as word, but in English, historically, we've translated this as word, but the sense is anything that gets uttered, anything that gets expressed verbally. Um, or on the other hand, in terms of the mind, it's the power of reasoning. This is the equivalent of the Hebrew that gets translated as wisdom in the Old Testament. I want you to look at something here. Matthew chapter 13, verse 19. If you look at Mark, he says in 14, uh, verse 14, the sower sows the word. But in Matthew, he says it's the word of the kingdom. Now, if you go to Luke chapter 8, you have here the parable of the sower. And in verse 11, it says that the word is the word of God. So we have three different writers, and each one is something a little bit different. One says the word, another says the word of the kingdom, and the third, the word of God. Again, word meaning the expression, the utterance from God. In Mark, it's just the plain expression, the word. But in Matthew, you have the word of the kingdom. And this is interesting because 
the audience that Matthew was writing to, those Jewish Christians, still were perhaps a bit hesitant about using the word God in all situations, as you'll find even today among more conservative, more orthodox Jews. Uh, I know if you look at some of their writings, if you see a printed text, they might spell the word God as capital G hyphen D. So what you have here is a substitution of the word kingdom for God. But they're all saying the same thing, that what the seed is that Jesus is talking about is God expressing himself to human beings, trying to express himself, trying to utter something to each, each and every human being. I'd like to say something now about the word seed. <clears throat> Can I break in for a minute, Henry? Absolutely. How did the Protestants come to start calling the Word of God the Bible? I think that was probably before Protestants because Catholics do it too. Oh, they do? Yes. So I, I'm assuming that, some, that somewhere along the line, probably in the Middle Ages, that took place. You, don't, you do not find that. I, I've never seen it in early Christian writings. When they talk about the Word of God, they're talking about what we're talking about right here. God expresses. Because calling the Word of God the Bible is a major shift in Christianity. It's a major shift from the very basic meaning of the Spirit of God, that Holy Spirit is in everyone as a seed, as we see right here. Yes. And what happens to the seed depends on how each and every human being uh, approaches it or ignores it. Yeah, I, I've wondered about that too. I've never gotten an answer as to just when the Bible began to be called the Word of God, but it, it was not, not a biblical thing, and I don't believe it ever was used as such in any early Christian writing I've seen. So, good question. Henry, I recently read um, The Bible is a Catholic Book, and going through that, in this particular book, they refer to scripture and not the word. Uh, I'm not clear as to what you're asking. No, I'm not asking. I was just saying that being as that was a Catholic's view of the Bible, they were referring to the written word as the scriptures. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even friends would, would speak of scripture as the uh, scripture of truth. With a capital yeah. T, I would say, in, in modern English, we'd put a capital yeah. T there. Yeah. And scripture, the, the Greek word for scripture is uh, graphi, which is a plural yeah. word. And all it means in Greek is uh, writings, the writings. That's all scripture is. The word scripture goes back to Latin, scriptura, which means writing, singular. So, um We've, we've given scripture a specific meaning uh, by just taking that Greek word and turning it into a religious term and the Latin word scriptura too. So, yeah, that, that, that's what the New Testament refers to the writings of consistently is scripture. Yeah, yeah right. but what, what it's really and, calling and, it is just the writings. Right, and that, that's why friends prefer to refer to the writings as scripture and not as the word because that's the the language that the Bible itself uses. Yes. Okay, let's get to the word seed. <clears throat> All right. 
The Greek word for seed is sperma, familiar as the root, and that has two meanings in English, seed, and it also means semen. You can see the word sperm comes from the Greek word sperma. So if you're talking about a plant, we translate this word as seed. If you're talking about a, an animal, we translate it as semen. That's what the Greek word is here. And I think someone just decided in talking about God planting a seed, they've decided to use the word seed, but either one would be correct because the seed of God is neither plant nor animal. And they just decided seed would be the best translation into English. On the other hand, the Latin word for seed is semen. And semen in Latin means seed or semen. So this word seed that we are translating into the Greek word sperma, there's an arbitrary decision somewhere along the line in translating from the Greek to just translate it as seed. And of course, here when we're talking about sowing, we would use the word seed, but it also means semen. Any questions about that? All right, I'm going to continue to read about the purpose of this parable. Do you not, this is verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. So the Lord God, God the Father is placing his seed, his, he's uttering to people, trying to utter in, in our consciousness these things. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, when they hear God speaking to them, they immediately receive it with joy. They have no root and endure only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. What this parable is saying, this comparison is saying, is that we should all strive to be good soil and to listen to that silent voice of the Lord in us, telling us something. I, I don't understand something from a little earlier. Um, it says that he, he says to them that to them has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for everybody else, things come in parables. So first of all, why don't they understand all of this already? And second of all, why do they need to know what parables mean? Oh, okay. And also, and also the, the verse that comes afterwards, why would he be saying, why would Christ be saying that they'll look but not perceive and that as if that were something desirable and no it's not, not a, it's hardly it's desirable it's, but, it's the unfortunate fact that a lot of people just ignore but it says um, it in it says in order that they may yeah, well in the greek okay the greek there that's just the translation i think that's the word hina which uh, is hard to translate because it has so many meanings it's a conjunction hina 
It can just mean that. It's, it's such that, if you think of it translating it that way. Oh, okay, that, that's quite different from in order that. Yeah, that's, that's the translation that uh, is giving a problem to you. You know, the situation is such that unfortunately, some people, because the world, the cares of the world are just enticing them so much, they're not paying attention to this still small voice within them that is always there. It, it may only be there initially as a seed, as something very small, but that needs to be nurtured and allowed to grow. And that's the, so the parable is really saying something, this comparison is saying something about unfortunately how it is that uh, some people maybe hear it initially when they're young, but then stray from the path, you know, um, and others, but those who don't and those who really focus on it, they're the ones that will prosper greatly and, and yield good fruit, good grain, a lot of grain. I wonder why they wrote in order that because it's such a well that that conjunction that, that conjunction can mean that okay in order uh, i would i would just say i would not translate it that way i think that's a bad translation okay okay that, that's my dictatorial response well it makes uh, sense <laughs> there was another question you asked i've forgotten now he says that they have been given the secret to the kingdom of god Oh, um, the, so the, why, don't, why don't they know these things already? Oh, well, this is interesting. In, in throughout the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that uh, so often they're very, the disciples, are, uh, the, the apostles and the disciples are very thick-skulled. They just don't get it. <laughs> he keeps trying to explain things to them, and uh, uh, they don't understand him. And even not only in Mark, but elsewhere, like in the gospel according to John, there is such a confusion. So often people want to take something literally rather than understanding the spiritual significance of what's being said. And they, they just don't, they can't seem to get, or they have difficulty getting over that superficial understanding of what's being said. And I think that's still very true today. So many Christian denominations would prefer to take things superficially, I would say, or literally. And there's, some, there's such a greater, a much more powerful spiritual meaning there if you can get beyond that, that first initial understanding of, of a scripture. You know, it, it is hard to understand what should be taken truly literally. But even if you're not clear on that, look for the spiritual sense the spiritual meaning in it that's that's what really matters especially in the new testament so much more of the old testament involves history as such but that's that's different so although although even in the case of reading the old testament aren't we to take that allegorically too perhaps yes but there's there's just a, an enormous amount of history there that it's just pretty straightforward history about events that happened and whatnot different uh -huh. reigns of kings and judges and whatnot. So um, there may not be much spiritual sense in some particular section. It's just a relation of history. Anyway, early friends really focused in on this, that this word of God, 
God expressing, God uttering, trying to get himself, trying to get himself to be understood and to be heard by each of us individually is initially a seed. And it's the kind of ground that we have to become rather than what we might be, you know, being a straight, led astray if we're on the path, maybe the birds come and that's where Satan takes us away or rocky ground and we don't have any root and we're kind of frivolous and just jumping from one theology to another, from one religion to another. What else? The thorns are all the worldly cares, greed and cravings and addictions that just make it very hard to, to find that, <clears throat> that voice of God, that light of God within us. And then, of course, the, the good soil. That's what we need to become, what we need to be. I think it's in Second Peter, First Peter. It talks about the implanted word. That's what we're talking about here, this word of God that's implanted in us, the seed that's implanted in us by God in every human being. And even elsewhere in other parables, Jesus talks about watering, say, a fig tree, putting manure around it. These all are in the same vein talking about what, how we need to change and become willing receptacles, you know, pure vessels as Peter, not Peter, as Paul himself says, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And you're not going to be a temple unless you are clean, pure. And that's where we really need to make sure that we are really transformed into the kinds of human beings that God the Father wants us to be, or, or I should say, to become. Henry? Yes. I'm uh, kind of interested in the mention of the devil. Which verse? 15? I'm not sure, actually. I think it is 15. Or does it talk about Satan? Satan. Or, or the, yeah, Satan. It's uh, verse 15. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word which is sown in them. How should one interpret that? Okay, well, Satan, I would say this is a spirit of evil that comes, that somehow at a moment, immediately which is a favorite word of Mark. He uses it many times throughout his gospel here. That's like a spirit. If we, uh, Well, I've spoken about the spirit as being perhaps understood as a current, you know, something that moves. And friends often talked about this as the influence, the inflowing of the spirit. The, the spirit flows. It goes where it wishes. And that the same thing is with Satan or an evil spirit. There's some thought that will take us away from God, uh, maybe onto some more worldly kind of craving or addiction so that we're not paying attention. We're not leaving ourselves more open to and more receptive to hearing the voice of God in us in whatever little way or big way it appears. So we don't really know the source of the evil. I mean, I actually don't think it no. comes from... A, particularly in, a particular entity. Oh, no. I, I, I think that might be uh, an incorrect way of doing it, although people will think that way. Even the word Satan here, in the history of Judaism, it had various meanings 2,000 years ago, actually even before that, and it, it kind of shifted its meaning over, the, over time. And that's why I sometimes am hesitant to talk about it because I'm not myself sure how to understand it other than saying that, like in, a, in this case, we're, we're talking about an evil spirit. I mean, it's not like 
how many, there are seven billion people on this planet. Are there seven billion Satans around? No. So, um, you know, tempting someone to do something they shouldn't, you know, to have one more drink of liquor or, or take drugs or whatever, or to say something nasty about someone, whatever thing is. But, you know, there are those spirits that need to be kept in check. And so I, I myself am a bit hesitant to how to translate that. I, I'll just keep it Satan. I think it doesn't help us to think of it as a specific entity. Because, I mean, you know, if you can say Satan is tempting millions at the same moment. But, oh. you know, we, we don't want to give Satan divine powers either. Because, I mean, if as a Christian, I would think that Jesus Christ has conquered Satan, that as it says in John, I have overcome the world. And that means I have conquered worldliness. That's this worldly inclination to a more materialistic, physical, gratifying kind of spirit. And that's what Jesus did. What What did the early friends hold? Did they think that there was a, an actual Satan? Again, I want to say I hold that too. But how I interpret that in terms of, I, I'm not saying that, you know, there is a spirit, one spirit, or I could say it is one spirit, but that how I think of it or how I need to react to it is that it is evil and that it is something that I need to be on guard against to really work on uh, not allowing those spirits to, or that spirit of Satan to, uh, gain hold and, and have me do things that I later would be very sorry I did, something I said or, or did or, you know, how I acted. So, again, this, this is a point for myself that I, I'm, I'm hard at uh, explaining it to others as to how I understand it myself. All I do know is that it is important to, with the Lord's help, conquer such inclinations, such devilish inclinations. Henry, I just sent you a link. There's an evil inclination is the Jewish word. And this phrase, Yetzer Hara, you'll see in the link that I sent you on the chat, uh -huh. is an inclination to do evil. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's what I'm saying. Yeah. This proclivity, this inclination. I, I think as we get stronger and maybe the Lord is helping us more, there may be less that we are able to fight more and more such inclinations. But when I think of people who have serious addictions with alcohol or, or drugs or, you know, sexual lusts or whatever, they've been taken over by Satan. They've been taken over by that spirit or those spirits that need to be looked at. I know for myself, if I could give myself just a little more time when I'm confronted with some evil inclination, bad inclination, if I just could hold on for a little bit more and think about it, then I'm better at fighting it. If I give in to it quickly, it's tough. It's not what I want. Well, friends, friends would, uh, that I've heard speak would call that spirit the deceiver. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, the, so the, that would be Satan they would call him the deceiver. And what does the spirit of Christ say? I am truth. I'm the way. I am truth. And the opposite of truth, with a capital T, is deceit. 
and the deceit is from the deceiver. I wonder if some people don't find it helpful, though, to think of the deceiver as being more tangible. There's, there is such a tradition of that, and it sometimes, to some people, it seems very real. Yeah, I have no problem with that. But I'm saying, I personally, it's hard for me just perhaps knowing what I know to, to look at that way. But in, in, in a true sense, I have no illusions about how powerful that deceiver is. Whether I think of him as some kind of invisible, one invisible entity or not, I think the effect is the same. I think, as Jesus said, he comes to lie, deceive, and destroy. And I think that's how the evil comes to us in one of those ways. Like he can deceive us, he can destroy the truth or um, our good goodwill or good intentions. Yes, doesn't... He can lie to us, you know, and he lies constantly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's one way. I mean, somewhere it says uh, Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan. I think that's somewhere in Acts, I believe. That's the power of God within us. That's the word within us. That's the wisdom of God within us. And we need to nurture it. We need to fertilize that that seed in, in order to fight all the wiles of this enemy. Since I've come across the designation, the father of lies, (laughs) <laughs> that seems to capture something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. We're, I, I think we are so easily led down the um, wrong path. And, and that's why we really need the grace of God to help us. You know, God's kindness and favor to help us to uh, overcome these things. If you recall in the Lord's Prayer, well, the the translation, one translation that's most common, I think, is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, okay, I'm going to give you a better translation. That that's really an in that there's that's not a good translation, in in English. Lead us not into temptation. Well, that is in a subjunctive form. The lead, the verb is in the subjunctive, or something like. You should not lead us. And then the word temptation is erasmus. Erasmus has two meanings. It can mean temptation, but it also means a period of trial, a trial. Now, if you look at it this way, God does not lead us into temptation. What kind of God is that? Lead Mm -hmm. us not into temptation. No. If you translate it something like, may you not, Leap, uh, bring us into a period of trial. You know, we're human beings. We're weak. We have our, we're very weak at this. So it's, it's kind of a nice request of the Lord. May you not bring us into a period of trial, to a trial. And then the next line, but deliver us from evil. Well, that but is much strong. The word in Greek is Allah. And it means but, but more often it means on the contrary. Uh, on the contrary, but rather. So, may you not bring us to a period of trial, to a time of trial, but on the contrary. And then we have the word here, deliver. The Greek word means uh, rescue. On the contrary, rescue us from. And then this is an adjective that uh, Poneros, rescue us from 
uh, I'm not sure the spelling of this word, something like that. Uh, rescue us from poneros, I think that's the spelling, which means evil. It's an adjective, but it can also mean the evil one because adjectives can sometimes be used as nouns. They're made into nouns, nominalized. So may you not, you should not bring us into a time of trial, but on the contrary, rescue us from the evil one. That's what those two verses from the Lord's Prayer are saying. And of course, the evil one, well, that's what we're talking about here. That's interesting. I know in the Catholic Church, I, I read something about the Pope, Pope Francis wants to correct that translation too, but he's only partially correcting it, <laughs> in my humble opinion. <laughs> I think the Anglican Church is doing it too. Oh, okay. Yeah, God, God is not God is not a tempter. It's interesting translating this Lord's Prayer into modern English, really paying close attention to what the original says. Just talking about the Lord's Prayer, rabbis, Hebrew teachers, and even today, it is still a custom for them to have their own prayer, to create an own, their own prayer. And uh, usually from bits and pieces of earlier prayers uh, within the Bible or elsewhere in Jewish tradition. And this was Jesus's prayer. If you look at the prayer in the gospel, according to Luke, it's much shorter with a slight difference. And even in some manuscripts, there are some other variations that make it even more interesting as to what the variations say. In the Catholic faith, they don't have the last for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not in the that, Father's prayer. Right. That's not there because it's not in the earliest Greek manuscripts. It appears to have been added, or when they were saying the prayers, such a prayer as this, within their group settings in house churches, they added that to it. And so it eventually be, uh, came to be, came to exist in some manuscripts of the New Testament, of Matthew and Luke. This prayer doesn't exist in the Gospel according to Mark. It does occur in the Didache in a slightly different mm -hmm. form, which I'll be talking about tomorrow, actually. So how did we get off on all this? <laughs> uh, oh, Satan, Satan, Satan. Satan. Henry. Yes. Uh, does, does the RSV clean up this Lord's Prayer? Not as well as I would like it to, unfortunately, no. Okay, so they no. get the better version. No. I think the RSV and the NRSV are the best translations out there overall. But, of course, they too have their problems. You know, even though I use those two as the most common kind of translation you'll find out there, occasionally there's a better translation of a passage and some other biblical translation, but it varies. It's always good to just look at the Greek and... Go study Greek. <laughs> I know that's a little hard to do. I understand, though, among the uh, Muslims, the true, I don't know what to call them, the or truly orthodox Muslims, if they translate the Quran into another language, they really want the original, in, the original Arabic to be there with the translation so that people can always go back and look at the original because the translation may not be that good. And therefore, if you get the original, you can fight over. There, there, that's a very different kind of argumentation that occurs over the original than over a translation.
Uh, Henry, what about the Aramaic? Wasn't there a lot of people speaking Aramaic at that time? Most Jews in Palestine were speaking Aramaic at that time. Hebrew was still existed for another, what, 300 or so years, 400 years after okay. Jesus. But at this point, for many Jews, it was a religious language. Aramaic is very close to Hebrew. It's, it's a sister language, somewhat like Spanish and Italian and Portuguese are similar, you know, mm -hmm. because they all came from an original source. So Hebrew and Aramaic, but Aramaic had become the language, uh, basic ordinary language for most Jews at that in the first century. Of course, there was a large number of Jews living outside of Palestine in uh, various cities of the Roman Empire, especially in Alexandria and in Rome. And of course, what they spoke was Koine Greek, Common Greek, the international language of the Mediterranean and Mideast at that time. And so uh, their native language would be Koine Greek, just like today, Jews in America, their native language is English, and they need to learn Hebrew to read the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, in the original yeah. language. Well, any more questions? I think our time is almost up here. This concludes Henry's fifth Bible study on the Gospel of Mark. Give over thine own willing, give over thine own running, and give over thine own desiring to know or be anything, and sink down to the seed which God sows in thy heart. And let that be.